everyone. Today is April 14th, 2021, and welcome to another edition of The Well-Read Investor, the podcast that profits your mind and your money. I'm your host, Mike Hansen. This week, we have Arnold Kling on the show to discuss his book, The Three Languages of Politics, Talking Across the Political Divides. Now in its third edition, it's a short little guide to navigating ideology and tribalism in today's political world. Whatever your political views, I think you'll find this discussion enlightening and helpful, much as I did. A little bit more on Arnold Kling. He worked at the Congressional Budget Office and the Federal Reserve Board in the mid-70s, got his PhD in economics from MIT, worked at the Federal Reserve Board again in the 80s, and Freddie Mac in the 90s. Since then, he's been an active teacher, writer, and blogger on today's most salient issues. He's written many books, and of those, I also recommend his Specialization and Trade, which is an easy and pretty short guide to the basics of economics ideas. Politics, of course, is of tremendous importance to investors. It defines the rules by which we operate, individual and company alike. So we must pay attention to politics. It has meaningful impacts to entire economic systems, let alone individual industries and individuals themselves, for that matter. But when it comes to how markets move, we have to leave ideology at the door. Markets do well and poorly through time with both Republicans and Democrats alike in power. Favoring one side or the other leads to investing mistakes. That statement is true globally as well. What matters ultimately is what politicians do, not what they say. There's always tons of talk about grand ideas and huge programs, But the truth is they rarely come to fruition in the way lofty rhetoric envisions on both sides of the aisle. Even more than that, politics is a global issue for investors. It's not just about the US. So thinking critically about not just your own ideology, whatever that might be, but about the nature of these conflicts in general is of great usefulness as you try to navigate the markets. We had Arnold on the show to, at a minimum, help our listeners rise above the shouting across the aisle for just a moment and look at the issue from a more dispassionate view, one that might help investors make better money decisions predicated on politics. Either way, though, Kling is an interesting thinker who can be both enlightening and challenging, and I think you'll see that in this conversation. It's what we love around here. So enjoy this conversation with Arnold Kling. Arnold, thank you so much for being on the program. I've been a reader of your work for many years, but today we're going to talk about the latest edition of your book, The Three Languages of Politics. But first, thanks for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. The first thing I want to ask you about before we even get into your work is that you've had several books now over the course of your career that have been more like longer essays, I would almost say, and they're right to the point and they're very impactful and powerful. Tell me a little bit about the reasons for those decisions. Why would you write a shorter book versus a longer one? Part of it is I'm just terse, (laughs) you know, for better or worse. I actually think nowadays it's better. People have such information overload. And I think people who try to indulge in fancy writing, I mean, I don't enjoy it as much. I just want to say get to the point. How much reading do you do day to day, given your work? Oh, I do a lot. I think I average more than one book a week, and I also read a lot online. And I try to actually be pretty careful about if I'm in the middle of reading something, saying at the margin, is this the best thing I could be reading now, or should I switch to something else? 
it is kind of a funny thing. I mean, I know that especially in today's information age, it really is about choosing and pruning more than it is about including anymore. You have to really be choosy. So let's talk a little bit about your career as well. You've had a very interesting career in addition to all the writing. Would you tell our listeners just a little bit going back from your beginnings and on through some of the experiences you've had, including at Freddie Mac and the Fed and so forth? I got my PhD in economics at MIT. That was not a good time to be on the academic job market. And I was very fortunate to get a job at the Federal Reserve. I stayed there six years moving around laterally. I don't think it was a good fit for me in hindsight. Then worked at Freddie Mac, and that was a really nice fit. I think I helped them, and I learned an awful lot about business. It was a period where Freddie Mac was in the process of going from what I call sub-Dunbar, which means it had fewer than 150 people, to super-Dunbar, which means way over 150 people. (laughs) And I think companies really change as they get past that point. So it was just a very interesting time to be there. Why weren't you a good fit at the Fed, or why wasn't the Fed a good fit for you? It's very structured, very conformist. Mm. I just rebel against that. So Freddie Mac had my ups and downs, and I was in a particularly down period. And the internet was just about to become released to the private sector. And I just fell in love with it, decided I wanted to try to set up a business on it. And it was in some ways not the most brilliant time, but I kept at it, combination of luck and unusual behavior on my part. In terms of timing, we had the perfect timing to sell it, which was 1999. I always tell students that if you get a chance to sell an internet business in 1999, you should do that. (laughs) That's my advice to your investment audience. (laughs) So since then, I've been kind of just being this idle intellectual writing. I did high school teaching for 15 years. and But then when I started to have grandchildren born, I decided that I wanted to prioritize giving time to them. And so I backed out of the teaching. I do want to get back to teaching, but I want to ask you very quickly, you sell an internet business in 1999. How similar or dissimilar does today feel to you? Do you see similarities? The internet is way different. Okay, I'll just say that. It's nothing like what we expected to be, nothing like what it seemed to be in 1999. But the frothiness in stock markets does seem to me quite similar. Now, let's talk a little bit about the three languages of politics, which is in its third edition. First of all, what is the conceit of the three languages of politics? What are the three languages? Let me give you three words. Oppression, barbarism and coercion. Presumably, you react negatively to all three of those words. You may even think that they're approximately the same thing. So the conceit, as you will, is that there are three political tribes, progressives, conservatives, and libertarians. I'm trying to break libertarians out from other conservatives. And each one of them, it turns out, gets emotionally attached to their opposition to one of those three bads. So the progressives get emotionally attached to their opposition to oppression, oppression being defined as a group of people who abuses another group of people. And when I talk about language, I'll say that when a progressive really wants to demonize you, they will try to make it sound like you are on the side of the oppressor and you're against the oppressed. And for a conservative, that same kind of 
emotional reaction is civilization versus barbarism. So if a conservative is trying to denounce you, they'll accuse you of being on the side of barbarism. And if a libertarian is trying to denounce you, they'll accuse you of being in favor of statist coercion. The ultimate monopoly on legitimate use of force is the government. And so that's the source of coercion that libertarians most worry about. You go to some lengths to separate out conservatives and libertarians. I always found that to be effective because, it, at least in my view, it really is the case that libertarian, for example, will have certain desires or beliefs that'll cut across both of those and so on. But you tend to say this is their core value and it's what tends to drive. Let's be careful about that. I don't think it's a core value mm. in the, because that makes it sound like I've really captured everything about these tribes. When I say languages, I mean that this is a particular language they use, and the way they use it most is to demonize people who disagree with them. My view of politics, and this has really grown over the years with each new edition, is that a lot of political rhetoric has nothing to do with trying to persuade somebody who disagrees with you. It has everything to do with trying to demonize someone who disagrees with you in order to, in effect, close the minds of people on your own side. It isn't enough to say to somebody on our side, you and I are basically right, and here's a logical reason. I want to go so far as to make it sound like the other side is just out to cause harm, that they're just terrible, dangerous, awful people. And that's what a lot of political rhetoric comes in. If I had it to do over again, I would call it three rhetorical mm. tools of politics. Taking your points into account, it's the lens through which people tend to see, in a core sense, whatever political viewpoint they're taking on whatever specific issues. Is that right? It is the language that resonates. It's the language that they will fall back on when they're trying to achieve closure on an issue, to sort of settle it once and for all and to say, no, there's no reason to listen to the other side. Would you agree or not agree with the statement that it's a lot of this is in some sense about nullifying ambiguity in a highly complex world? I would agree with that, especially rhetorically. And so given the state of things in social media, has that had a good or bad effect on all of this? In a variety of ways, you know, social media has made things worse. A formulation that has come to me really since writing the book, I talked before about this Dunbar number. And one way to think of it is we have an intimate world where it's below the Dunbar number. We know our families, our neighbors, our co-workers. And there's a remote world where historically we didn't really know people, but the remote world included celebrities, politicians, athletes, whatever. And the remote world, when I was growing up, you saw remotely, they were on television or in magazines. And the intimate world, you know, people you met in person, you saw them in person every day. Now, both worlds are on your phone. So especially if you're like a teenager, your friends are trying to act like celebrities on the screen. And at the same time, you can flip the finger and you 
encounter the tweet of a president of the United States. I think that social media has created a lot of confusion about what's in the remote world and what's in the immediate world. And so people's emotions, I think, are heightened about the remote world. They're much more heightened about politics than they would have been without social Mm -hmm. media because you react the way you would react if one of your friends were bothering you or someone in your family, even though you react just as strongly to a stranger's tweet as a friend's insult. Yeah, it is. It can certainly be true. Now, I know your book isn't necessarily prescriptive, but do you see any improvement or way out of this at the moment? Ideally, people who know better would behave better. Politicians wouldn't go onto Twitter. People would recognize, and this is a little bit of what my book is trying to do, recognize when you're being pulled in an emotional direction, especially by people on your side. So, you know, I lean somewhat conservative. I'm not entirely libertarian, but when I read a typical Victor Davis Hanson column, just using the civilization barbarism rhetoric, I try to push that away. I say, okay, well, he's using this rhetoric. He's trying to pull me in. Let me just filter that a little bit. Maybe he's got a point, maybe he doesn't, but I'm not going to immediately fall for that. And if you were progressive, you would try to filter out people who are trying to manipulate you along the presser-oppressed axis. And if you're a libertarian, try to filter out people who are trying to manipulate you on the liberty-coercion axis. Now, we tend to talk about these issues as if they're only United States issues, but do you see this as a global feature? I don't claim that the description of the three tribes fits as well overseas. What a lot of people have noticed is because American media is so pervasive in the world, people in the world, they're caring about American racism and things like that. You're an active blogger. You are constantly writing about the current economy and acting it. You're in active debates with people like Tyler Cowen and others. And I was just reading your piece on inflation vis-a-vis Cowen. So let's just talk about a few issues. Do you see inflation coming over the course of the next several years? So the most likely outcome is that inflation would stay low. But I think there's such a significant chance that inflation will take off that in my personal portfolio decisions, I'm and this is partly because of my age, I'm at an age where I'd rather not lose anything. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be very protective against inflation. The way I put it is if we don't get inflation, it won't be for lack of trying. (laughs) Is it a money supply issue to you? I take the view that inflation takes a lot of effort to get going. The best way to get it going is for the government to lose control of its ability to finance its spending without printing money. If you're really looking for a country that has inflation potential, look for a country that is having trouble meeting its government spending needs with taxes and borrowing. So I take it you're not a big fan of modern monetary policy, that is it? (laughs) Fair? I agree with one little aspect of it, which is that it doesn't differentiate strongly between government debt that pays an interest rate and government debt that pays no interest, i.e. money. I think that's actually a reasonable insight. Conversely to that, what are some things that you see as optimistic features for the global economy? 
So if I were trying to make an optimistic case, I think it would have to be that there's some technologies that are going to mature more quickly than people expect. So one possibility would be something like augmented reality. I keep saying that I can't believe that Zillow hasn't come out with an app that lets me walk down the street, point my phone at a house, and get the Zillow estimate for its price. It's kind of a weak augmented reality, but there's just tons of potential for that. The COVID situation has probably accelerated a lot of technological innovation. Here we're meeting using technology that we would have never used a year ago. And all sorts of people are working remotely. And who knows how quickly biotech will mature. Turns out we had a vaccine back in January. Yeah, I would have said that's impossible. Now, a similarly short book you wrote called Specialization in Trade, it's kind of a primer in economics in general. Do you see trade today as heading in the right direction? Do you worry about the state of trade? Everyone always talks about the US and China, but trade is such a global phenomenon. Do you see that moving in the right direction? Yeah, I think it's probably more unstoppable than people would give it credit for. I expect international trade to revive especially if we can get the COVID fears behind us. I think that there's just too much to be gained from it. The one change that I think we'll have is we'll see companies at least think about making sure that their supply chains are not just the most efficient they can be, but also are a little bit more robust. So if something goes wrong somewhere, they're able to rearrange their supply chains. They might sacrifice a little bit of profit for robustness. That'll be up to the incentives provided by the shareholders. Yeah, that will be very interesting to watch how it unfolds. So to wrap things up, what is next for you? Are you writing anything new in terms of books? What's on your horizon? Well, I'm doing something weird. Do you know anything about fantasy sports? A little, although I don't do much of it myself. Right. I'm an investor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I like to say, I actually, you know, during the baseball season, like I'll spend half an hour a day looking over my, what my fantasy baseball team is doing. And I'll go months without looking at my stock portfolio. Probably a good idea. (laughs) Could be. But anyway, I have concocted this idea of fantasy intellectual teams where people would draft public intellectuals. I have some scoring methods. The purpose of it is I'm looking for leverage points for what has gone wrong with like our, especially our academic culture, our journalism culture, our political culture. And I think the traditional status hierarchies in the country have been gamed. They've been around too long, have gotten stale. And so kind of the wrong people are getting high status. Mm. And so the idea of this fantasy intellectual teams is try to come up with a different way of creating a status hierarchy for intellectuals so that people who I think are not as well known and certainly don't have the prestige in the mainstream media that I think they deserve would kind of climb up to the top of this fantasy intellectual team story. And maybe that would get some attention and we'd start to come up with a better prestige hierarchy in that world. That's a fascinating idea. I call dibs on Thomas Sowell here and now, but I have to ask you, since you brought up baseball, who's going to win this year? The best 
team got better, didn't they? Didn't the Dodgers get better? That's what I think. (laughs) Kind of scary. Yeah. Well, Arnold, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was great to talk to you about your books, but very interesting to hear about some of these other concepts. And we really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you very much. That was our talk with Arnold Kling. Here's a fun fact for you. The intellectual rankings system he mentions in our talk just came out, and it's pretty interesting and certainly controversial. Personally, for me, ranking thinkers isn't really my style, but with any well-constructed list, what you get out of something like that are areas that you might be blind to or just simply didn't know about. There are certainly some names in there that I'm less acquainted with, so I'll be checking those out. You can find the entire list at arnoldkling.com. And thanks again to Arnold for stopping in to speak with us. Okay, we're on spring break. We'll take a couple weeks off and come back to you in May with more challenging and exciting authors to make you a well-read investor. Until then, though, we wish you a wonderful and healthy spring. And as always, may your reading profit your mind and your money. Take care. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time, based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. The opinions and viewpoints of podcast guests are not necessarily those of Fisher Investments. Copyright Fisher Investments 2021.